Many of you know who Tom Watson is. Tom and his wife, Julie, there. Tom is on the left. Um, Tom Watson is our pastoral care minister. He's the one that basically assigns to the rest of the ministry staff and elders to go and call on those that we're aware of that are in need of a home visit or a hospital visitation of some kind or need special attention of prayer or something spiritual is going on in their life and, and they need a minister to be present. Tom's that guy. Tom is perhaps the greatest pastor that I have ever come to know. And in our area, in our region, Tom is becoming known as kind of like the pastor's pastor. And you'll find this guy all the time, nursing homes, at hospitals, and in people's homes, visiting, writing note cards. Many of you have been recipients of of some of those encouraging notes that uh, he hands out. And of course, I'm sure you've all been hugged by Tom. Like it or not, man, you're going to get it. And he gives it to you. But Tom, is, Tom has been a blessing at our church. And I've been blessed by his ministry. You all are blessed by his ministry. It is an awesome ministry. I'm so thankful that he's serving the Lord here at Bethany. But let's just say that Tom is called by the Lord to go to the country of North Korea. And God audibly speaks to Tom and says, Go there and speak to the leadership of that country. Preach to them so they may end their oppressive ways. Kim Jong-un, the dictator of North Korea, has expressed that if he captures an American citizen, that he will either imprison them, torture them, execute them, or much worse, give him the same haircut that he has. (laughs) Well, I'm not sure what number that is at the old cut and corral, but whatever it is, stay away from it. But Tom does something uncharacteristic. We all know Tom as being an obedient follower of God, but he decides to run from God thinking for whatever reason that if he runs from God, God won't be able to find him. So he goes to a place that he loves, Colorado, finds a cabin there that is totally obscure. No one knows about it. And he just begins to live there, and, and, and he nearly goes stir-crazy, nearly turning into the Unabomber. But some, some agents from a three-letter agency pull him out dressed in dark suits and sunglasses, put him in a van, drive him to the Denver airport, throw him in an airplane, and he's blindfolded. He has nowhere where, no idea where he's going. He assumes now that God is punishing him because he knows he's ran from God, and he assumes whatever's going on right now has got to be punishment, and the next step for him is something that God is going to unfold in his life that he's not going to enjoy. Cargo door opens up just right as the, the wheels land, and, 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 and he has this prayer come to Jesus moment. He says, God, look, I'm sorry for running from you. I will do whatever you want me to do. Just spare my life and I will be a faithful, obedient servant of you. And the cargo doors are open. He stumbles out and he's in the heart of North Korea. And there he is before the leadership of, of North Korea. And he preaches this message, in your oppressive ways or face God's judgment. And they do. I mean, everybody comes to Christ. Kim Jong-un and all of his cronies, they repent of their sins. and They put on sackcloth and they cry out to the Lord and, and they end their evil ways and they give their life over to Jesus and they stop wearing evil dictator suits. Have you ever noticed that, that evil has a dress code? I mean, what is the deal with buttoning it all the way up to the top in a pantsuit? I don't know. And now the radical change has changed their whole environment. And now, now they're partying in North Korea. Now they look like this. <laughs> Things are exciting because Jesus is in their life. And it's all because Tom was faithful with a message to have them in their oppressive ways and turn from evil. And the world leaders are so excited about it. They want to find Tom. 
And faith leaders are so excited. They want to find Tom. And you are all totally pumped because this is your guy. This is our guy. This is Tom. This is the one we come to love. And you go over there and you want to find Tom, but Tom's nowhere to be found. And you track him down because you love this guy and you just want to celebrate what God's done. He is, the world's changed because you find him in the DMZ, the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. And he is so upset. He is grumpy. You don't find the gracious, compassionate pastor we've come to know and love. You find a temper tantrum Tom. And he is a pouting prophet. And he's a guy that is just mad as a hornet. And he's yelling at God. And he's telling God, I knew this was going to happen. This is not the way that it was supposed to be. And you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, Tom, what do you mean? Your message has changed the world upside down. There's now peace in the region. There is now salvation of millions of people. And Tom says, but it wasn't supposed to happen this way. Peace was supposed to come not through salvation. Peace was supposed to come through total destruction of North Korea. And you walk away, and you're like totally baffled by this because you're thinking to yourself, what minister in their right mind gets angry with God that they were used to change the world? Who gets angry at that? Now, that sounds rather outlandish. I get it. But at a much larger scale, that's Jonah's story. Recognizing the power of God and swallowed whole By a large fish, he encounters God, and inside the belly of that huge fish, he has a come-to-God moment, and he decides, you know what, I got to stop running, and I got to start doing what God's asked me to do. And he spit up on the shores, and he walks to Nineveh, and he preaches to that city an eight-word sermon that 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown, and these evil, evil people repent of their sins, and they give themselves over to God. They talk to God and confess their sins, then they turn and walk with God, and that's called repentance. And they give up who they were, and they start becoming who God wants them to be. True conversion takes place. Now, Nineveh is a huge city, but it is known to be an evil and merciless city. It's known as the city of blood. And so you can see Jonah's apprehension there. Like, I don't want to go because there's a chance that I might die. But beyond that, Nineveh just happens to be my greatest enemy on the face of the earth. And what's amazing about Jonah chapter 3 that we learned about last week is that not only is in God in hefty pursuit of us, regardless of how evil, malicious, broken we might be, God is in pursuit of us, but that even the most hardened heart can be changed. Didn't we, we learned that. Even the most callous heart can be changed. That there's hope for all of us. I mean, it doesn't matter how stone cold you are. God can change you. And you can be as hardcore as you want to be. And God says, you know, I can break through that stuff. And that's what he did to the Ninevites. And Jonah was expecting them to be annihilated like Sodom and Gomorrah. And God says, I'm going to give them a chance. I mean, they're my creation after all. Jonah chapter 3 verse 10, here's what happened. When God saw what they had done, and remember what they did, kind of a strange saying, we don't do this today, but to show that they were sorry, they put on sackcloth, which is like a burlap material. They gave up food and they made their animals do the same thing. And that was a way to say, we are really sorry, God. And then the most important thing is when he saw what they'd done and how they had stopped their evil ways, when they'd stopped sinning, go and leave your life of sin. That's what Jesus would tell people when he'd heal them or when he'd spare them. He'd tell them, go now and leave your life of sin. Show that you are truly being changed. And then he changed his mind. You ever wondered if God changes his mind? Have you ever wondered that? 
Can God change his mind? The scriptures have a few stories that tell us blatantly God changes his mind. What did he change his mind in doing? Not carrying out the destruction that he had threatened. We call that grace. We call it mercy. However you want to title it, however you want to term it. But what was taking place was that Jonah was having a complete meltdown. And he was having a temper tantrum. And he was the pouting prophet because he wanted Nineveh annihilated. And God spared it. He just, he didn't get God's grace. He didn't understand God's mercy. He, he knew it in part, but he didn't know it in whole. And I don't think we know it in whole either. I don't even think we'll even come close to knowing it in whole. I mean, you can search this out for the rest of your day. I don't think we'll, under, I don't think we'll know the depth of God's grace for us. I don't think we'll know the expanse of God's mercy that he can put in our life. There's two words I'm using, grace and mercy. Let's define them. First off, grace is when God gives you what you don't deserve. God gives something to you that you don't deserve. For Jonah, it was a second chance. In the New Testament, we call it salvation. We don't deserve it. God says, through my son, you get it. Mercy. Mercy is when God doesn't give you what you do deserve. What did Jonah deserve? Well, because he was the pouting prophet and he was disobedient, he deserved death. But he didn't get it. The Bible puts it like this in Romans. For the wages of sin is, do you know what it is? Death. But mercy comes into play and the gift of God is eternal life. Mercy. You get mercy. And we say, well, that's good for us, but I'm not sure about for other people. And that's exactly how Jonah saw it. That's good for me, God. Thank you for sparing my life. Thank you for keeping me in mind. But would you just do away with my enemies? He couldn't understand grace and mercy. And I'll tell you what, I don't get it either. I don't. And let me, let me just kind of like toss this one out to you. Maybe you don't either. I mean, if you've ever been passed over for a promotion and that promotion wasn't given to you, even though you worked, you worked, 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 and you, you have the better skills, it was given to somebody that has a poor attitude in the company and someone who has not ever given an honest day's work. You've just experienced the hard side of grace. Or if you've been a student and you have been a part of a classroom that has been disruptive because of one student, and that student seems to get away with murder, and the teacher doesn't seem to do anything about that student's situation, there's just no discipline. Just, oh, this allows that to continue on. You have just experienced the difficulties of mercy. I, str- I struggle with this. I mean, I can remember all the way back in college when professors would have in their syllabus when a paper was due. It's in the syllabus. You get it the day the class starts, when the paper's due. You have like 12 weeks to write the paper. But there are those students, you know, that wait till the last hour to write it. Do we have any procrastinators in here? Some of you are like, I'll raise my hand. Oh, you wanted it too late. Yes. And they have the lamest excuses, right? They'd come up to the professor and they'd say something like, I know you gave me 12 weeks, but my printer just didn't seem to be able to print it out. I, you know. And then and here's, the, here's the professor. This is what I get so grumpy about. The professor would say, well, that's no problem. Just turn it in to me by the end of the week. But I turned it in on time. I worked my tail off to get it in on time. I made sure my printer worked I made sure the paper was drafted, said, and done a couple of days. What's my bonus? Shouldn't I receive some kind of reward? What are you going to give me? Man, I struggle with that. If I had some of those professors here, I'd wring their neck about it. I'll tell you what. I still struggle with it. 
And that's what Jonah, Jonah's struggling. I mean, this is the hard side of grace and mercy, that perhaps God is going to be more merciful to your enemy than what you honestly think he should be. Maybe God's grace goes deeper. And I'm just going to float this out there, and you can, I'm leaving, so I'll say it. Maybe God's grace goes even beyond the grave. Jonah chapter 4, here's where it is. Page 754, and he starts in verse 1. We'll read it together. God has just said, I'm going to spare Nineveh, and Jonah can't seem to handle that. He's having a total meltdown in front of God. And it's, he says in verse 1, But to Jonah this seemed very wrong. He became very angry, and he prayed to the Lord. At least he kept speaking to God in his anger. Some of you in this room, you get so angry, you don't even speak to God anymore. And then Jonah says, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried. This is, why, this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I love that he blames his disobedience on God. You're the reason, God, I was disobedient. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a, good, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. He has become unglued because he has seen God's mercy and God's grace at work in someone who he hates. And he says, that's not fair. But yet he forgets the grace and mercy that's been extended to him. And he's thinking, life would be better, God, without our enemy here. The enemy, the sworn enemy of the nation that Jonah represents is Nineveh. It's the Assyrians. And he's saying, God, don't we want them completely annihilated? And then we can really have peace. We won't have to worry about them anymore. And Jonah's idea of peace is complete annihilation of his enemy. You know what God's idea of peace is? A total change of heart for your enemy. Well, that's what Jesus teaches. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Have some mercy and grace towards those who you count as evil. Could God be so gracious? Could God be so merciful that he looks at the wicked of the earth and says, I wish, I wish you'd come to me. I'm going to spare judgment until you do. And I love Jonah. Jonah's so honest. He says, God, I knew this was going to happen. I knew what you were going to say. Because I know who you are. God, I know that you're gracious. I know that you're compassionate. I know that you're slow in anger. I know that you're abounding in love. I know that you're one that relents from calamity. I know who you are. I just wish you weren't who you are. And I think the reason why Joni, Jonah, Joni, <laughs> Joni and Chachi, they're a part of the well story. <laughs> I think the reason why Jonah is so discouraged and upset and so angry is he's angry at, God, at who God is. Just, I'm just, God, I don't like that you're so gracious like this. I don't like that you're so merciful. Grace is when God gives you what you don't deserve. Jonah got a second chance. He didn't deserve it. Mercy is when God doesn't give you what you do deserve. For Jonah, he should have been punished, but he wasn't. He's forgot about himself. He's forgot about the circle of grace that he walks in. And sometimes I think we just have the wrong idea of God, and that's where Jonah was. I just, just consider this, that there's, he had a misconception, and let's just all kind of consider this too. Maybe we have a misconception of who God is. We're not spiritually ignorant like the Ninevites. They didn't know their right hand from their left spiritually. It's just sometimes we get confused about God. We just forget. We just maybe have been taught wrong. I don't know what it is, and, 
It comes out in statements like this where we think that God has some kind of personality disorder and we say the God of the Old Testament is a God that is angry and the God of the New Testament is a God that is filled with love. God has multiple personalities. And God says, no, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Please don't take three or four stories that showed my justice and my discipline as signs that I'm angry and upset with humanity. Jonah says, God, I know you're a God of compassion, and that's what I don't like about you. Think about the flip. Now we say, God, I don't like that you're angry with me. Jonah's problem was, God, you're just way too compassionate here. You shouldn't be this compassionate. Just misconceptions. Last week, I was pulled out of the stands of my son's baseball game because I was asked to help coach the baseball team. You're in a bad place as a team when you ask me to help coach the baseball team. <laughs> because I wasn't much of a baseball player, mediocre at best. I didn't really take it too seriously. The, most of the time, I'd sit in the dugout with the kids. If I were coaching this last week, I'd sit in the dugout with them, and we'd have like a big league chew bubble contests, and we would see who can spit the sunflower seeds the farthest, that kind of stuff. And uh, there was a multiple rain delays that day. There was lightning that was striking everywhere. By the second inning, we were like in our fourth rain delay, and the kids were all in the dugout. There were just nutcases in there. They were going crazy, caged animals. And uh, one, of the, one of the lightning strikes had ended, and the coach was outside. And it was one of those moments where the weather pattern kind of broke and split, and the, the beautiful blue sky could be shown, and the sun just had this, you could see the ray of sun. And it was like the God light just shone. And there's this impressive rainbow. It's just so huge and, and dramatic. And the coach just blurts out, what a beautiful rainbow. Well, the kids just bust out of the dugout door. You know, they all swing out of there like sailors on leave. And they look at the rainbow. And they're just checking it out. And they're in awe of this rainbow. And there is silence. There is absolute. They're in awestruck of God's creation. And there's oohs and ahs. But there's mostly silence until one kid who begins to explain to the rest of the group that that rainbow is from God. And he says, that rainbow is a promise of God that he would never flood the earth again. And then he went on to say, but he broke his promise because grandma's house flooded last year. <laughs> but here's better. One of the, the theologian of the team don't even know the kid's name. He just goes, no, no, he sets the record straight. I love it. He's like, no, that's not what God said. It's not what God said. God said he would never flood the entire earth at one time. There'll be regional floods. Grandma's house will flood, but he'll never flood the earth at one time. I'm taking notes for the next time I'm preaching on Genesis 6, 7, and 8. I'm like, this is good. This is good. I'm telling the theologian, I'm going to be gone this summer. You want to preach in my place? But there's just a misconception that we have kind of a childhood innocence in a way. That like, we think we know, we think we've grasped God, we think we got a handle on this guy, and then he just totally does a swift change on us and he starts saving our enemies. He starts doing what, what he's requested us to do. Love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love those that are different than you. And we're not entirely wrong for having the misconception. We just, we just play back and forth with God. Like we'll say things like, um, God doesn't want me to have fun. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. God doesn't want me to have fun. But in the next breath, that same person will say, God wants me to be happy. Well, which is it? Does he not want you to have fun? Or does he want you to be happy? Or what? Or some people will just say, God's mad at me because God's angry with me. And I'll say, when did he tell you that? Where in scripture do you find that? 
Just misconceptions. Jesus dealt with these misconceptions all the time. Jesus was like sweeping up constantly the dust of misconceptions. And Jesus told this parable about a farmer. Um, He equates the farmer as God himself, the Lord. And the farmer has this vineyard and he needs some workers to take in the harvest of the vineyard. And so he hires some guys at 730 in the morning and they agree to a wage of $50. It's a pretty good wage back then. And he says for a full day's work, 50 bucks. They say, great deal. We'll work hard. But the, but the labor becomes so intense, the harvest is so plentiful, I guess, that the farmer has to go back out to the city square and get more workers. So he hires them in, and he agrees at mid-morning to bring those workers in to pay them a fair deal, but the work becomes even more intense, and so he goes back out mid-afternoon, finds more workers, and he agrees with them for a fair deal of their wages, and then it gets so intense that an hour before the whistle blows and they're to clock out, he finds more workers, he brings them in and says, I'll make a fair deal with you. Finally, the whistle blows, and it's time to clock out. And so the farmer says to the foreman, would you make sure everybody is set and ready and has their paychecks before they leave for the day? And he calls the workers in to pay them. And the, and the farmer says, would you just start, though, with the, the last ones that were hired and work yourself down to the first? So the foreman dishes out the, the money. To the ones who have been there one hour, he gives them $50. To the ones that have started at mid day, he gives them $50. To the ones who started mid-morning, he gives them $50. To the ones who started at the beginning of the day and worked their tail off, he gave them $50. Well, the guys who have been there all day are hopping mad, and they come to the farmer, and they are saying, are you kidding me? These last workers that you hired only put in one measly hour, an easy hour, and you're equating them to us? We've slaved all day under the hot sun. And here's what the farmer says back to them. Here's what the Lord says to them. He says, oh, you think I'm being unfair, do you? Didn't we agree on the wage before the work? And can I not do what I want with my own money? And then here's the big question he asks those guys. Wait a minute. Are you angry with me because I am merciful and gracious to people? I don't know how they answered that. I know how Jonah answered it. Verse 3, Lord, you you take my life. For it's better for me to die than to live. I can't bear to watch. Your grace unleashed like, I can't bear to watch your mercy be extended to people that are the scum of the earth. Do you know who these people are? They've murdered, they've raped. How dare you, Lord? How dare your grace go that far? God says, what right do you have to be angry, Jonah? It's my money. I can dish it out how I want. So Jonah, I mean, he's upset. He leaves Nineveh. He's furious about it. Verse 5 says, Jonah had gone out, sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter. That's, I think that's something key there. I'm not sure how to preach that, but I, I, I think there's something in that phrase. He made himself a shelter. He sat in the shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Verse 6, then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. Boy, is that a bunch of grace. I would, I would have slapped him. My kids have done much less, and I've slapped them for it. 
And Jonah was very happy about the plant. Verse 7. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. Oh, there we go. Good. Thank you for the slap. Finally. I feel justified. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Which I would have responded, oh, really, Jonah? God didn't. So much smarter. And the entire reason I think why Jonah goes out to the east and sits on the hill is he just wants a grandstand view of what he thinks should happen, and that is the utter destruction of, of, of Nineveh. He just wants to see it catch flame. He just wants to see it burned up. He wants to hear the screams of anguish from his enemy, but that's not going to happen. Why? Because God is too gracious. God is too merciful, and he can't handle it. He just can't handle the depth of God's grace and mercy towards his enemy. And notice Jonah's shelter. I don't know how to preach it necessarily. I know there's something there that he has shelter. He's made it by his own hand. And what does God do? God provides shade. He provides more shelter, more shade than what Jonah had. When we get more of something, oftentimes as Christians, we call that a blessing, don't we? We say, well, God's blessed me beyond all measure. We say things like that. And I think what God was doing here was to say to Jonah, look, Jonah, I'm not going to give you any reason to complain now. I should, but I'm not. And Jonah, what does he do? Still complains. So God brings a little bit of discipline, or maybe it's more of a life lesson found within what happens next. A worm arrives to the vine, chews up the vine, and just as quickly as it sprouted, it begins to wither. And then God sends a scorching east wind. Now, the word that Jonah uses, the word anger, a couple times to God, in the Hebrew literally means to burn from within, to burn with anger. That's where we get the term. And that scorching east wind just makes me wonder if God was telling Jonah in just some kind of little way, you burn with anger towards me, I'm the one that should be burning with anger towards you. And you're lucky that my grace and my mercy are a part of your life. I don't know. Sounded good. But I do know this, that Jonah... Jonah's taught a lesson by God, one that hopefully we can learn from. Verse 10 says, but the Lord said, hey, Jonah, you, you've, you've been concerned about this plant, which is the way we roll, right? We're always concerned about the things that involve us, but the things that don't involve us, we don't have much concern for. You've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, died overnight, verse 11. And, and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than a thousand are 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. And also, hey, they got many animals as well. That's a strange thing to say. But what God's doing is he's correcting the misconception. Jonah, listen, son, you have been filled with pity over a plant that you did not create. Should I not have pity? Over people, even evil people that I have created. And God tells Jonah, all of my creation is important to me. I don't have favorites. Have you? He doesn't have favorites? He lets the rain fall on the just and the unjust. Are you kidding me? I thought because I was a believer, God, I had special attention. Isn't that the misconception that you thought too? Remember the Israelites when they marched through the Red Sea? 
the book of Exodus. They're escaping Pharaoh's army, Pharaoh's pursuing, and there's this miracle of God that happens. The great thing about that miracle is that they walk across on dry ground. When God does a miracle, it's complete, guys. They march across on dry ground. Maybe two million Israelites march across, and they escape the slavery of the Egyptians And there they are on that side, and all of Pharaoh's army comes down, and God closes up the sea, and he wipes out the army that is pursuing them. The enemy of the Israelites is totally, utterly destroyed. And on the banks of the Red Sea, the Israelites have a party. They start praising God, and here they start saying, in Exodus 15, they start saying things like, we are so thankful that we got to witness the annihilation of our enemy. We are so thankful that we got to see them wiped out and utterly destroyed. And here's the term that they use of God. They say, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. The Lord is a man of war. They're Their misconception is that God wants war, that he wants destruction upon the enemy. Some versions say the Lord is a warrior. He's just out to seek and kill and destroy. Last time I remember, that's how Jesus described Satan. Not God. And yet they're all celebrating victory. Now the rabbis, those who taught this scripture before Christ came along. For thousands of years, they taught the scripture in this way. They would say... That as the Israelites rejoiced on the shores of the Red Sea, so was the rejoicing the same in heaven. And all the angels rejoiced that the enemies of the children of the Lord were utterly destroyed. And one of those messengers, those angels, ran to go get God to have a victory lap with one another. To celebrate that God's children were safe and the enemy was destroyed. And he searched all around heaven's temple but could not find God. He finally discovered him in a, in a back area of the rooms of heaven. And he saw God in the corner grieving crying. And the angel said, Lord Almighty, our enemy has been vanquished. Our children are safe and secure. Why do you grieve? And God responded, how can I celebrate when my creation has been destroyed? And what's so interesting about the way that they taught that Exodus 15 was they would put it with Jonah chapter 4 as bookends to say children of God we are all children of God and the grace that you rely on and the mercy that you trust in is not just for you it's even for the most wicked do you remember celebrating Osama bin Laden's death The news had like six different frames. The celebration in D.C., the celebration in L.A., the celebration in Seattle, the celebration. And we just, finally, evil, gone. And we celebrated. About five decades after Jonah came a prophet named Ezekiel. Ezekiel spoke on God's behalf, and here's what he said on God's behalf, he says, as surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people. What? I, I do. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so that they can live and opens up the giant heart of God that you and I cannot even begin to understand the amazing grace that goes beyond anything we can comprehend, the deep and rich mercy that you and I will never begin 
to really know in this earth that God's heartbeat is not just for you. It's even for the wicked. I'm not sure how Jonah received that correcting. There's no Jonah chapter 5. There's, there's nothing that we can really determine about how he walked away from this. One thing we can be assured of is that Jonah wrote the book of Jonah, so there had to be some kind of change of heart there. I mean, if there is ever a friend in the faith that you can find in the scriptures, Jonah should be that friend. He's my friend. My, my, story, my story seems to mimic Jonah because my life seems to be inconsistent like his. At times where I just say, maybe you're handing out too much grace here, God, um, I thought I was your favorite person. At times when I could just say, God, I'm just inconsistent. God, I've got anger issues. God, I've got trouble viewing you as you truly are. And what I love about Jonah is that that I look at him and I say, if God can use a guy like that who did have anger issues, who was wishy-washy as a believer, if God can use a guy like that to save 120,000 people, then God can use a guy like this. And God can use you. God can use us to do something great for him. I like what Eugene Peterson had to say about the book of Jonah. He said, Jonah is not a hero too high and mighty for us to identify with. Like finally, right? Abraham seems too faithful to me. I can't identify with an Abraham. I'm not that guy. But I can identify with Jonah. Uh, Jonah's not a hero too high and mighty for us to identify with. He doesn't do anything great. Instead of being, being help up as an ideal to admire, we find... Uh, We find Jonah as a companion in our incompetence. That stings. That maybe I just don't understand God completely. And I've got to admit that Jonah at some point had a change of heart. And I have to have a change of heart too. A heart that beats more for God. And as I see Jonah as selfish, as I see Jonah as rebellious, as I see Jonah complaining, as I see Jonah angry, as I see Jonah having temper tantrums before the Lord, I've got to say, and so do I. And so do I. And if not, but for the grace of God and His mercy, and Jonah just shows up warts and all, doesn't he? He just... Here I am. Thank you, Jonah. Finally, someone in the Bible I can identify with. A moron is here for us. And he just says, here's my shortcomings. Take them or not. I haven't always been the best, the most faithful. I haven't always wanted the best for others. I've questioned God's grace. I've questioned God's mercy. I don't understand the depths of it, but I will will recognize that he is gracious, that he is compassionate, and I love that for myself. I just have to deal with how I love it being shown to others. And I think what Jonah really shows us is that we're to love those that are different than us. That we're to love our enemy. That we're to love those even though we don't feel like loving them. And we ask the question, why? And I think the simple answer is because God does. God does. The New Testament puts it like this. The Lord's not slow in keeping his promises, as some of you understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you. He's patient with you. Apply this to yourself. God is patient with you because you and I are really the Jonah. We're inconsistent, and he's just patient with you, not wanting you to perish, but you to come to repentance. He's just waiting for you to have a chapter 5 to write 
a new page of obedience with the Lord.